May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I saw a list this week of um, 20 or so of the most unnecessary inventions ever produced for humanity. Among them was um, air-conditioned shoes. Air-conditioned shoes are actually shoes that are just normal shoes with holes in the bottom, as if they're quite unfinished shoes. It seemed to me that the inventor had never considered the possibility that someone might walk, I don't know, in rain or snow or something like that. There was another classic gym. It was called the Remote Wrangler. The Remote Wrangler, okay? And so it's like a headband. Um, remember like the athletic headband like, um, like John McEnroe used to wear back in the 80s when he played tennis or maybe a LeBron at the beginning of his career? The regular kind of athletic type of headband, but the outside was the soft side of Velcro. And what you would do is get things like your television remote, um, you know, the DVR remote and the, the cable remote, and you would put the rough side of Velcro strips on the back of those so you could just stick them to the side of your head whilst you were watching television and, and you wouldn't lose your remotes quite so easily. I wondered if, if I had shown you that earlier, if anybody would have got one of those for Father's Day, which I think would have been a classic gift. Um, there was the napkin chain. The napkin chain is what you, you just kind of slip it in your purse or in your pocket. You take it to um, a restaurant, and you just can kind of hold your napkin up around your, you know, like, like a glasses chain. Or um, There was the gas-powered flashlight. Um, a gas-powered flashlight, it was like weighed about as much as like a, like a leaf blower. And all I did was, like, have a flashlight on it. Um, there was the goldfish walker. So it was like you put your goldfish in a bowl when it was on wheels, and you could pull it around as if you want to take your goldfish around the neighborhood. Um, <laughs> ladies, a lipstick stencil. So you just put it around your face, and it just had a little cutout for your lips. So apparently you didn't get it on your face whilst you were applying lipstick. Or my favorite, the, um, the wine glass necklace. So like a lanyard you'd wear around your neck, and then you could just stick your wine glass in it so you could be hands-free at the party, you know, you didn't carry your wine around your, your neck. But the best one, the best in the list of 20 of the most un unnecessary inventions known to humanity was diet water. A company, Sapporo in Japan, is marketing diet water. Yes, I know that water comes with no calories, no sugar, no fat, no cholesterol, no carbohydrates, yet somehow in Japan you could buy diet water that would have even less of nothing in that. I thought how funny it is that people love to invent things that no one needs. But then it got me thinking about the way that people invented things that we really do need. There are so many like great inventions, and if you had a list of like what are the greatest inventions for humanity ever, number one might have to be on most people's list, the wheel. I mean, a great invention, right? The wheel. We even say it's the best thing since the wheel, the invention of the wheel. Um, I, I worry about the person, or at least I feel sorry for the person who invented the wheel, because it's been so long ago that they never get the accolades that they probably deserve, right? Whoever he or she might have been, um, we, have, uh, we have no remembrance. They didn't even know about naming rights, you know? I mean, all this time we could have been calling it the Sarah, you know? We'd be saying, oh, it's the best thing since the Sarah, you know, or, or whatever we might call the wheel. Then I got thinking, well, maybe wheel was their name, and, and now the wheel has actually taken over their name. And so that went to a whole different train of thought. The compass. <laughs> so the compass, a great invention. Once you invented the compass, no longer did, were you limited to traveling just to the big tree on the hill, you know. You could find your way back a little bit more securely. 
optical lenses, like everything from, from spectacles to magnifying glasses, the telescopes, just think how that has changed the way we literally see the world. And then other things like printing press, electricity, penicillin, steam engine, and since I'm from Dayton, Ohio, the airplane. Um, these are all great inventions that have forever changed the world. But there are also the dark side of inventions, aren't there? I mean, gunpowder, um, nuclear fission, the internet, all those sort of things that can bring darkness and difficulty into the world. But the more I get around that a little bit, I thought, you know, it's really not the invention, it's really how the invention is used. It's really into what human hands this invention lies, whether it'll be used for good or for evil. It's the humans and how they use it, not the inventions themselves. St. Paul would have, I think, been on this same sort of line of thinking if he had been around because as he writes to the Christians in Corinth, he talks to them about the fact that their lives matter, that their lives matter and what they do in their lives matters. He begins by reminding them that time is finite. If you have your bulletin, will you look at the epistle lesson with me? It's 2 Corinthians, or if you would prefer to say 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And the very first verse in, our, in the bulletin is verse 6. Paul writes, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Now I have to get this in first. Paul talks about being in, uh, while we are in the body, while we are dwelling in the body. He uses the preposition in, just like we would use the word in. It means to be in something, you know, inside of. While we are inside the body, while we're living in this, we are, and he actually uses the word ek, like we would use exit. We are outside of the dwelling of God. So while we are present in the body, we are away from the Lord. But he doesn't think that when we die, we become disembodied spirits, and that's the end. Paul believes in the bodily resurrection. He simply means that at the end of our human life, there is going to be a major transition that will forever be recognized from the time that we're a disembodied spirit until the bodily resurrection. But while we are in the body, we are in some way separated from the Lord. And yes, of course, we have the Holy Spirit. Yes, we have prayer. We have the church, we have the sacraments, we have the fellowship of believers. We have many ways in which we can can kind of ascertain something of the presence of God, but not the way in which we die, we will be ushered into the full presence of the Lord. The immediacy of the presence of God. Um, You remember this passage from Job where the writer says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has thus been destroyed... Yet in my flesh I shall see God, I and not another. The sense in which when we die, there is an ushering into the presence of God that is going to be forever changing the way our consciousness exists. We will know God immediately. And this is our hope, that we will apprehend God after our death in a way in which the place that we go will be a truly better place. I remember as a child um, the Challenger space shuttle disaster. Do you remember that? The, the space shuttle exploding in the air. And I remember President Reagan's speech. And when he said that those brave men and women slipped the Surrey bonds of earth to touch the face of God. I mean, what a great, great line and a way, great way to, to give comfort to a nation that was suffering. That to, to slip the Surrey bonds of earth and to touch the face of God. Um, 
this is the comforting image. That this is the sort of image that Paul has. That, that at this point of death, that we, we, we slip from earth and come into the presence of the Lord. But as we do that, or as we get, prepare to face that, as we live our life in this world, in this body, how do we do it? We walk by faith, he says, and not by sight. How do we live a life of faith? And I think he means that we use the tools that God has given to us. We use the tools um, of Scripture and the church and the sacraments. And we seek to please God. Did you notice that? Verse 9. Look again down there at the next uh, verse 9. Uh, a few verses in. We start at 6, 7, 8, 9. <laughs> so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. How do we please God? Well, I think it begins by understanding, meditating upon, and basing our life upon holy writ. That scripture is our authority. That we place our lives underneath the authority of scripture. It means that we measure success in life by faithfulness to God's commands, not by the metrics of our world. Success is not measured by how much or how little we have. Success is measured by faithfulness. By fidelity to the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule. Success and, and faithfulness is a willingness to suffer before denying Christ. It's a, a sense in which we place our lives and, and our, our entire sense of being um, below God. And, and, and that we want to please God in all that we do. So we should read the Bible. We should worship in the church. We should meditate upon Scripture. We should seek to do things. And worship ought not to be like a vitamin supplement, you know. It should be the regular part of our everyday being. That we should be people of prayer. And so like great inventions that we use these tools that God has given us to live a life of faith. But I think a life of faith isn't just limited to, um, to our own personal piety, our own, our own personal well-being. Look at the next verse, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says we will all be judged. Um, it's a very uh, cliche thing to say, hey, don't judge me. You know, um, We say this all the time, like joking me and seriously, whatever, hey, don't judge me. Guess what? You're going to be judged. <laughs> I can promise you that. Because I'm going to be judged as well. We are all going to face a tribunal. And it's going to be done for things. Look, look at the text again. Will you look at it with me? We must, are going to be judged for the things so that each one may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body. Deatu somatos in Greek. Through the body. What we have done through our bodies. Soma. Um, it's where, you know, you've heard this phrase like psychosomatic. When your brain causes your body to do. Soma is your body. What you've done in your body. And two choices, whether good or evil. Now this is kind of an interesting word that Paul uses. Phalon in Greek for evil. It's not the word that we would expect. Kakos who is evil. Or, um, or paneros which is deliver us from evil. Uh, these are, are, are you know, dark, um, much more dire forms of evil. The word Paul uses for evil um, is more subtle. It's more like garbage. 
waste. Deliver us from the bad stuff. It would be a, a really good translation. Whether, um, whether, excuse me, uh, whether good or bad stuff would be a better way to translate Paul's um, words in 2 Corinthians. It's the trivial, the worthless, the banal, the, um, the, the things that are inconsequential and unimportant. We will all be judged by what we've done in the body, whether good or worthless. Whether good or trivial, whether it was good or whether it was banal, unimportant. John Wesley in, um, spoke uh, in, in Oxford University, I think it was Christ Church, his final sermon. His final sermon as, a, as an Oxford scholar in the 18th century. And he's speaking in a, in a chapel service to all his friends, his fellow scholars, his fellow um, students, uh, who are all, um, you know, people who were uh, lettered in religion and so on. And he says this to them. <laughs> Not a way to make friends. So many of you are a generation of triflers. Triflers with God. Triflers with one another. Triflers with your own souls. For how few of you spend from one week to another a single hour in private prayer? How few have any thought of God in general tenor of your conversation? That is your way of life. Who of you is of any degree acquainted with the work of his spirit, his supernatural work in the souls of men? Can you bear, unless now and then in church, to talk of the Holy Ghost? Would you not take it for granted if one began a conversation that it was just hypocrisy? In the name of Lord God Almighty, I ask you, of what religion are you of? Even the talk of Christianity you cannot bear. Oh, my brethren, he speaks of Oxford, what a Christian city is this? People who were on the outside very, very religious, but inwardly trifling with their own souls. Uninterested, really, in the deep things of God. Uninterested. Now, these aren't people who were living in outright evil. There was no lewdness of behavior. There was no grand larceny. There was no attempt to participate in genocide. They were just uninterested. Too busy to live a life of faith and doing real good. They were, as Wesley said, Trifling with God, trifling with one another, and trifling with their own souls. And he reminds them they were soon to face the judgment seat of Christ. And so here we are, present bodily, most of us mentally, um, and we, we, uh, we are aware of ourselves. We are aware that we are in some way separated from God. That we're not uh, experiencing the immediacy that we will after we die. And so we have to decide what we will do with our lives now. How we will live our lives in the time that we have left. For as sure as I'm standing here before you today, I shall not always be here. There should be a time when somebody will say, Oh, you remember Joe? Wasn't he a nice guy? No, not really. Yeah, there were this back and forth that would go on and, and there would be some talk. And as sure as you're sitting there right now, you shall not always be. There'll be a time when somebody says, oh, I remember him, I remember her. Yeah. And what then? When our bodies give way to decay, our spirits will continue to thrive. Our consciousness will continue to exist. And we shall, as St. Paul says, surely stand before the judgment seat of Christ. How shall we ju be judged? We shall be judged by what we did in our bodies. Whether good or worthless. Whether it was good or trifling. 
Did we do good? Did we ease the suffering of other people? Did we bring delight to the downhearted? Did we bring joy to people who needed joy? But do we simply just bed our own nests, take care of ourselves, and worry about silly things? Did we waste our time? I think so much depends on how we handle these days. People who are inventors, they just keep inventing. They just can't stop inventing. You know, they, they invent air-conditioned shoes because they don't know what else to do. You know, we just got to invent something, even if it's useless. When you're an inventor, you just can't stop inventing, and you get remote control wranglers and all that sort of thing. And I think that being a Christian might mean that we are people who are so desirous to please God that we take a moral account of our lives. We're so desirous to please God that we seek to do good in the world, for we surely know that someday we shall stand before Christ. And we know that we have a job to do to make this world a better place. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.